All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. This is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, DR, and Kai talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week. The news about race, injustice, and equity that went uncovered in the mainstream press, but that you should know about. Then I sat down to talk with Tabika Sam, a fearless activist and CEO of an organization called the Ladies of Hope Ministries, where she works to support women and girls who are impacted by the criminal justice system. We talk about a host of things. I learn a ton. She and I had gone on a tour of prisons in Germany before, but hadn't talked in a long time. Here we go. My advice is to speak it simple. I've said this before, but if you can't convince your aunt or if you can't explain it to your aunt, you ain't got it. Make sure you can explain it to your aunt. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. It's finally feeling like summertime. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is Jeray at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So we actually, we were trying to figure out what our banter was going to be for this week. And Deray and Kaya put me up on this New York Times article that goes through the vast history of how Haiti has gotten to where it has, not by itself, politically, socially, economically today. So this week, there is a beautiful and incredibly important article about Haiti in the New York Times called The Ransom, The Root of Haiti's Misery. And the the title is so appropriate. Um, I had the chance to go to Haiti in maybe a couple of years ago, three or four years ago. And I was excited to go because I wanted to understand what is wrong with Haiti? Why is Haiti in such bad shape? First of all, why all, do all of these climate things keep happening to Haiti? And why is Haiti so poor? Why is Haiti so devastated? Why can't it lift itself up? And this article does all the things. It tells the history Um, as it is called, the roots of Haiti's misery are reparations to enslavers. And what this article does is it goes through the history of the Haitian revolution. uh, But more importantly, it surfaces what I would say is not a widely known fact about the history of Haiti. And that is that in order to stay free as an independent Black republic, um, Haiti had to pay reparations to the French for the land and uh, and resources that France, quote unquote, lost in the Haitian Revolution, otherwise be faced with another war. And what makes this article so bananas is it actually calculates, these reporters have gone back and searched through a whole bunch of 
of documents and and ledgers and reports to figure out exactly how much Haiti paid, um, not just the staggering amount that um, France demanded, but then interest, loans, continued outflows of capital that were more than Haiti could ever get out from under. And it also um, talks about how the Haitian reparation payments actually fueled France, fueled the French banking industry, built the Eiffel Tower, um, created the wealth of what we now know as Citigroup, um, and created a cycle of underdevelopment where Haiti just kept having to borrow and kept having to borrow. And it begins to answer a lot of questions. Um, I'll say one more thing. One of my one of the things that I learned most when I went to Haiti, and and this article does a good job of of illuminating this is how the world was so afraid. First of all, Haiti was um, probably one of the most prosperous, the most prosperous colony in the world at the time. Haiti had coffee and gold and sugar and diamonds and all kinds of things. Um, But people were so worried that other colonies, especially Black people, (laughs) were going to look at the example of Haiti and rise up and overthrow all of these white folks, that the world conspired to freeze Haiti out. Nobody would trade with Haiti. You think about the Cuban embargo. This was the Cuban Cuban embargo on steroids. Um, Nobody, you know, Haitians had to pay this reparations. Um, Literally, nobody, the world decided we are not going to do, we're not going to recognize, we're not going to mess with Haiti at all. And part of that is why, um, uh, Southern slavery was so brutal because if you think about the Louisiana territory, that was French and those French people who lost their stuff in Haiti came on up the road a piece and they were like, we got to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen again. So whatever we did in Haiti was not brutal enough for these black people. We got to do worse and more. And this is in part why Southern slavery was so bad. I mean, there are so many parallels and connections to the Haitian Revolution, to world history that we do not learn in school, y'all, let me tell you. And this article is spilling all the tea. What it also reminds me of, Kaya, is something else that (laughs) doesn't get talked about, um, is that even in America with the emancipation, slave owners were paid. So there was an accompanying Emancipation Act that paid folks $300 per enslaved person. And it, I'm just finding in Washington Post that the, the, the highest payout was $18,000, but $18,000 in 1863, which is a ton a of, money of money that uh-huh. the U.S. government paid out to slave owners to ease their pain. Reparations okay for everybody else, but not for everybody us, huh? else. <laughs> everybody else. Everybody else. It is so wild too. I will just say, so the New York Times article was very good. There's been a, there's a robust conversation online about uh, people didn't accuse the New York Times of plagiarizing outright so much as they did of just not citing the sources. That there were a lot of scholars who had told parts of these stories at some point and were not acknowledged in the piece. So I just want to say that out loud. But what I will say is one of the things that I didn't appreciate until I went to Haiti and I went not too long ago too, 
is the nationalization of so much of the basics, like water. Like there are companies, like a few companies that own all the bottled water. Like the access to basic things were um, really changed after the revolution in, in France deciding to bankrupt the country. And the other is how much of the storytelling matters. I think this is something that I think about a lot in the organizing world, that the story shapes the way we think about the lessons. And the story of Haiti for so many people is like failed people, can't get their government together, like underdeveloped because they don't have the will or the skill, uncivilized, like that's what people think. And you're like, no, this was a country that was made to fail, a country that had incredible resources, a country that in exchange for its own freedom was relegated to poverty that was not the, was not the condition of the country before France bankrupted it. And in some ways, in a lot of ways, was punished for being better fighters than the French. You know, what the Haitians did that was so brilliant is that they lured the French into the middle of the country. And there's like a glorious space where they fought the battle. And those French people had no clue what to do with all the mountains and hills in Haiti. The Haitians got them, you know? And for Napoleon to be such a celebrated war hero, da-da-da, couldn't be the Haitians. He got and handed his booty worse than Waterloo, which was his ultimate defeat. He got handed it. But that was not the story that was told. And, and if you think the Haitian people screwed up and therefore the country is experiencing cholera and sanitation issues and poverty and da-da-da, that, then you don't realize everybody else's responsibility to help fix it at this point. But when you realize they were robbed and that robbing is what funded the French culture blossoming all across the world, that is a different story. Yeah, there's so much here. I mean, the the payments that the Haitians made were supposed to go to individual property owners, but the Times found that a lot of this money actually went to the French government itself, right? Um, and they interview all of these like European members of European royal families who are like, oh, I didn't know my money came from Haiti. It's so like literally it is it's astounding how cavalier we are about the fact that like the world literally like beat this country and and beat this country into submission all because black people rose up and we wanted freedom. And I think this reminds us that the price of freedom is high. It reminds us that there are not individual instances where people just want their little individual stuff back. This is what systemic racism looks like. All right, y'all. My news today is about the first two black women in the White House press corps, and they were honored with Lifetime Achievement Awards. Now, let me say this, they have transitioned. So I think the, the these awards may be a little bit late, but here we are. So <laughs> Alice Dunnigan, who is a Kentucky-born granddaughter of enslaved folks, was determined to fulfill her dream of becoming a journalist. Um, and by the time she reached her 30s, Dunnigan had a regular column for a local paper, but she wanted more. She landed herself a job in Washington, D.C., writing for the Associated Negro Press, a wire service for Black-owned papers. And in 1947, she became the first woman African-American writer, um, reporter, rather, that was credentialed to cover the White House. Now, Ethel Payne, who had a, a slightly different path to journalism, she was denied admission to law school because of being Black. And this is a quote that her nephew actually said that really um, 
really, really stuck with me, um, said this about his, his aunt Ethel. You couldn't control your opportunities back then. So you had to be prepared for whatever opportunity came along. And writing for her always came natural. Um, and so that really led her into um, a career of journalism. In 1951, Ethel was hired as a Washington reporter for the Chicago Defender, one of the country's leading Black newspapers at the time. Um, and so I, I, first of all, never heard of either of these incredible women. And so wanted to bring it to the pod because there's also kind of a video accompaniment that comes with this that you all can check out. Um, and it has more about their stories, but also um, some perspectives from their family. Both of these women are um, were honored by the White House Correspondents Association. They, unfortunately, uh, Miss Dunnigan died in 1983, Miss Payne in 1991, but their families accepted the award um, on their behalf. Now, the really, really, really cool thing um, about Ethel Payne is that in 1954, two months after Brown versus Board of Education, she demanded to know whether Eisenhower would support a ban on segregation in interstate travel. So literally, like in a press conference with President Eisenhower, she rose her hand and said, I'd like to know if we could assume that we have the administration's support in getting action on this. Eisenhower responded, well, I don't know what right you say that you have to administration support. <sighs> the administration is trying to do what it believes to be decent and just in this country. So that moment really sparked sparked headlines. Um, but yeah, just check it out, y'all. I just, I, this is my first learning about them. Um, obviously won't be forgotten. We'll dig into more, dig into more about, you know, about these, these incredible women and, and their careers. Thanks for bringing us to the pod, Diara. Um, this was super interesting. Hidden figures for sure. I hadn't heard of either of these ladies, but they, you know, we always say things like we stand on the shoulders of giants. And I think about, I think about how, you know, Black women, we do the things, we do all the things, even when we're not supposed to, when people say we can't. Um, and there are pioneers like this in almost every industry. But I was reading another article um, about Dunnigan, and not only did she ask um, about um, the ban on segregation, she also asked him about segregated schools on military bases in the South, and she asked Eisenhower about his overall support of civil rights legislation. And apparently the president stopped calling on these two women at his press conferences, right? Um, in 1961, during President John F. Kennedy's first news conference, his first news conference, Dunnigan asked about Black sharecroppers who were being evicted from their land in Tennessee simply for registering to vote. And Jet Magazine reported that that was the first time Dunnigan had been called on for two years. Like two years. Can you imagine sitting in the White House press corps and not getting called on for two years? And it brought, it reminded me of um, the moment when um, former President Trump um, tried to get jiggy with Yamich Alcindor, another amazing African-American a uh, woman journalist who was in the press corps. And when she asked some questions that he didn't like, he said some things a little sideways. And so, you know, I think about, 
um, Yamich, who's a fellow Hoya, Hoya Saxa. Um, and I think about other Black women journalists, April Ryan, and other people who are out here asking the hard questions and doing the hard thing. And we can see a through line from Dunnigan and Payne to these ladies who are doing it today. And that made me happy. The other story about Dunnigan that I thought was fascinating is that in... 1953, she was barred from covering a speech by Eisenhower in a whites-only theater and was forced to sit with the servants to cover Robert Taft's funeral. The stuff that Black people have had to go through to like just do their best is just so wild. And it is one of those things I'm telling you is we talk about white supremacy and I worry sometimes that it becomes for a lot of people like bad vibes, right? Like not evil behaviors, but bad vibes. You're like, no, this is evil. Like just evil. And people still did their best work, you know, like still did things that other people couldn't do during that time. But it was cool to, um, it was cool to, to read this. And, you know, I didn't know that, um, that Dunnigan actually went to go serve in Lyndon B. Johnson's campaign for the Democratic nomination and then worked in the Johnson administration. So there was an acknowledgement around her skills and she got to work in uh, in the White House in a, or in the administration in a moment where that was definitely not the norm for people. So shout out to these unsung heroes. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. My news this week is about the state of the family, y'all. Black America is not okay. You probably already knew that, um, but I got some numbers for you to back it up. Um, Washington Post and Ipsos did a poll last uh, a poll 
after last week's horrific, what I'm calling racial massacre, right? It wasn't a shooting. It was a massacre at a Buffalo supermarket. Um, And this poll sheds deep insights on how Black Americans are feeling right now. Um, So here's the numbers. This is just by the numbers. Three quarters of African Americans worry that they or someone that they love will be attacked because of their race. Most Black Americans were saddened and angered by what happened in Buffalo, but 92% said they were not surprised. In fact, many Black people see racism as one of our greatest threats. 53% think it will get worse in their lifetimes, and only 10% think it will get better. Um, That's a little bit of the Afro-pessimism stuff that we were talking about a couple weeks ago on the pod. In fact, Black Americans see the Buffalo shooting as reflective of broader racism in the country, not as a fringe attack or an individual with mental health issues, which is what um, some politicians try to sell it as. 70% think that at least half of white Americans hold white supremacist beliefs. 70%. 75% say white supremacists are a major threat to Black Americans. And 66% say white supremacy is a bigger problem today than it was five years ago. Um, Black people are worried about hate crimes. And when asked, why do you think people commit hate crimes against Black people? Black people say a whole bunch of reasons. 63% say access to guns contributes greatly. 57% say personal and family upbringing who raised y'all. <laughs> 52% say social media contributes. 47% say blaming Black people for their problems is a reason. 46% say political leaders. 45% say not enough teaching of tolerance in schools. And other reasons cited include mental health issues, lack of personal connections to Black people, and cable news. Two years after George Floyd's murder, of Black Americans say there has been little to no improvement in how police treat Black people. While acknowledging small steps in the right direction, many Black folks believe criticism of critical race theory, gerrymandering, and other culture wars are all a backlash to the kind of attention in the Black Lives Matter movement that we started to pay after the murder of George Floyd. In fact, one contributor to the article said that people seem bolder than even before in making clear their anti-Black racism. 65% of Black Americans say it's a bad time to be Black in America, y'all. 84 to 86% see racism, gun violence, and police brutality as major threats, even before Buffalo. Um, When asked to how we solve crime in Black communities, 72% say we should increase police officers. Um, 86% say we need more funding for economic opportunities. 68% say violence interruption would be helpful. 61% say increasing prison sentences for gun crimes would be helpful. The truth of the matter is, though, Most Black folks are feeling pretty hopeless right now about what it means to be Black in America. In fact, one young lady from Baltimore summed it up by saying, I don't believe there will ever be a solution for it. I think the thing that, you know, we've seen these these sort of attacks, unfortunately, not too long ago. And the thing that I've 
been in conversations with people in my actual life, like not on the internet alone, um, is just how chill the police were afterwards when he walked out. And not that I'm advocating for them to have like shot him and killed him, but they were really calm. You know, he just killed 10 people in a grocery store and they were just chill. And that is, you know, Black people have been killed for looking like they did something wrong. The other thing that is, you know, that actually I only saw on like the shade room and neighborhood talk was about the 911 caller. When oh, woman call, yes, say it, honey. When she called 911 and the 911 operator hung up on her because she was whispering, hung up I was like, her. I mean, and you know, this is my work all day. And I'm like, she I about to I, lose her job. She, she about, about to lose she, her job. She is, but it's like, you see why people don't believe. I mean, this is like a capstone in why people don't believe. Not only did the police not interact in the way you thought they were, but the 911 people didn't think it was serious. I mean, she was whispering because the shooter was in the place and she was trying not to get shot. And the lady hung up on her. I didn't see that. Literally, if not for Instagram, I would not have even known that happened because that was not the story. And, you know, it was people said this. So I wasn't the first person to say it, but we talked about the news talked about Will Smith smack way longer. longer. Than, that's right. That is absolutely this. right. This boy wrote a manifesto saying he was a white supremacist. He, all the things that like, he really is taking out any type of interpretation about his intent. He also planned to go to a second place and shoot up some more people. He had, I mean, he'd been planning this thing for weeks. He had done a reconnaissance trip to go check it out and all of the things like. And then there was one of those local officials was like, domestic, this isn't domestic terrorism. And you're like, whiteness is really something else. And, you know, I get it on this one, because if y'all can't, if we can't agree that this is white supremacy, then I don't know what is. I just, what are we supposed to do with this data, though? I mean, I think, I, I just, I, I think it just, it becomes so heavy sometimes. And and, and I am a pri- privileged person that can travel and go places and, and I think get somewhat of a relief, but I think for the for the great majority of us it's like what what is the recourse like is the young woman from baltimore right like it's just it's never going to get better um so i think that's what i feel like every now and then it just comes over me that i'm just like what what are we supposed to do with all of this and especially something something with that's not actually it's not our problem it's somebody else's problem and yet we got to deal with it I think part of the reason why I brought these numbers to the podcast is because I don't think that we, I think individually, I I can only speak for myself, but as Black people, I think we have a collective sense of, you know, sadness and grief and depression when these things happen. I don't think that other people deeply understand how affected we are by these things. I don't live anywhere near Buffalo, but I ain't been to the grocery store since last week for real, right? And I don't think that people understand how this impacts our work every day. Like 70%, 80% of people who feel like it's it's 
It's a bad time to be black in America. But you want us to work like everything is okay and you want us to show up like it's all good when like collectively we feel a full out assault on us as people that going to the grocery store could get us killed, that going to church could get us killed and you treat that killer to Burger King? Like we can't walk down the street without accidentally getting arrested and shot by the police, but you want it to be all right. And I, I I brought these numbers because I think people need to deeply understand how depressed, how anxious, how grieving the Black community is. And every day we get up and we do the thing, right? Every day we trailblaze, every day we, you know create your culture every day we make your music every day we up here asking your president's hard questions every day we're fighting crime right we are hurt as a people and i i mean i i don't i what do we do with it i don't know but i think acknowledging it is part of the process um so my news is, is about the subway shooter uh, so most people remember a couple of weeks ago, there was a shooter in Brooklyn who shot a set of people on the train in the middle of the morning. And then there was a manhunt across the city trying to look for the shooter. The shooter, as perhaps one of the best examples about how the police don't solve crimes, the shooter called the police department himself and told them where he was. And then there were people uh, who did see him and helped to turn him in. So you already know that story. But what I didn't know is that at least one of the people who helped to identify him and turn him in uh, is actually in trouble now for participating in helping to turn him in. There's a woman who is 37. Her last name is Flores, Miss Flores. She was dropping her young daughter off at school and she got on the train. She got on the end train at 59th Street. She was headed uptown and she got on a second car because she was pregnant, tired, and she wanted to sit down. And soon she realized that she was where the shooter was. And she shared recordings with the police that helped them figure out who he was. And then people started to realize, or like they found out that she was undocumented, deported. She's under threat of being deported because of this. So there are pushes for the city, for New York City to help them, uh, help her get a visa. There were other people too who also had, did not have full immigration status or weren't completely through the process. Um, who have been, who are relying on the city now to help them navigate the system. And I'm hoping that the city will do the right thing and like help them through this and um, it will help them apply for a visa. And, you know, that'll be, but it was just so interesting to me because these are people who like ostensibly did the right thing, who really helped, who thought, and to then think about being deported for uh, when you could have been quiet and done nothing I just, I wanted to bring that here because it shows to me how, A, we have a problem on immigration, the process and reform, we need to do better. The system needs to work quicker. I have some people, I know some people who've been going through the process for years and it's like, you know, I think about the Ukraine, we let a whole lot of people come in the country from the Ukraine in 10 seconds uh, and how we don't see that sort of quickness happen with immigrants of color. And uh, this is sort of the bookend of the New York City subway shooter story to me. Yeah, one of the other people who helped was a guy named Francisco Puebla, another undocumented immigrant who was installing security cameras when the subway shooter walked by 
Um, he's a manager at a hardware and garden store. And he saw the dude walk by. They he, they called the police and the dude was arrested. Um, do you know who his best friend in jail is? Let me pause parenthetically. R. Kelly, but that's a whole different story. Anyway, uh, Francisco was as partly responsible for getting a dude off the street. And he too is in immigration trouble. The thing that like the soundtrack that keeps playing to me behind this story is immigrants we get the job done from Hamilton. <laughs> like we are a nation that was built on, that continues to be built on the hard work of immigrants. And this is just like, this is this is like, um, what's the expression? Like a, a bridge too far or a something, the straw that broke. Like this is too much, right? These people help to thwart a, you know, a, a situation that had all of New York City um, up in arms and we want to deport them like what kind of ratchet country are we also Maybe this I is like say that. well it's also just like this this can be solved at like a new york city level right so it's like new york city law enforcement is involved in immigration it looks like the mayor's office is involved in immigration so i think it's also what is happening in this very resource city that kaya to your point is powered by Im- the immigrant community many immigrant communities like there's a it it says here that you know um new york city is able to give out 10,000 of these u visas annually but there's a 5 year backlog why y'all a 5 year backlog in new york city i so i think partly this is just like this is i mean first of all it's just like you know th- these folks should go to, to the top of the line in terms of um you know, who who can get status. But it's just also like, it just seemed, what, what this is surfacing is New York City's problem and actually processing and evaluating and making sure that people um, can can seek, you know, immigration status as soon as soon as possible. And I didn't, I didn't realize that. The mayor's office of immigrant affairs, they denied 407 applications. 264 were referred to other agencies. Like, what other agencies? Like, what is what is the system? So, I don't know. I guess that's just, like, kind of, you know, compelling me to figure out more about how New York City and how the mayor's office in this administration um, plans to address, you know, basically reforming immigration or getting immigration to move faster, even in New York City. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. I'm 
so pumped to talk to Topeka Sam, and I'm so excited that you get to hear from her. I've known Topeka for a while now. Topeka was formerly incarcerated, got out, now runs an incredible organization that helps women and girls who are impacted by the criminal justice system. You got to hear it. You'll learn. I learn. She is it. Here we go. Topeka Sam, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you, Zaray. I'm so happy to finally be here. Now, we go way back to visiting prisons in Germany, which was probably the most random criminal justice field trip I've ever been on in my entire life. Uh, But before we talk about that, can you talk about what is your story? How did you get involved in work around ending mass incarceration? Why is this your issue? Why do you care? All the things. Well, uh, I got involved with ending poverty and incarceration of women and girls, which is my epic life's vision. Uh, through my own experience of being incarcerated in federal prison for three years. And while I was there, I saw all the disparities that women suffered and faced uh, from me going to visit men who had been in prison uh, throughout my life to then me living in a prison. Um, I saw where women were being sentenced harsher for the same crimes, where uh, women were mothers, 85% of all women who incarcerated were mothers of dependent children, young children. Um, where whether women were poor, uh, black, brown, or white, or come from affluent backgrounds, um, socioeconomic advancement, uh, education, it didn't matter that there were the same underlying issues of sexual trauma, violence, substance misuse, intimate partner violence, um, and all these different state violences against women. And so I was there one night in my meditation, God spoke to me and told me I need to start an organization called the Ladies of Hope Ministries to do two things, create platforms for women to be able to use their voice, to share their experience, to change what was happening uh, for women in prison. Because I felt that if people saw the faces of women and heard the voices of women in prison, that there would not be such an uptick of 800% increase of women in prison over the last two decades. And for me to create safe, affordable, and beautiful housing for women and girls when they come home from prison. And so I was released uh, May 5th, 2015, and began running around the country, organizing, meeting people, and hearing the same issues, uh, no affordable housing, uh, lack of access to quality healthcare, couldn't get you know food, jobs, equitable opportunities, employment, uh, just all the things. And so um, I created the organization in 2017, and the rest is history or herstory, I should say. Or herstory. What are the biggest misconceptions? You know, you talk about incarceration. This is your work now. Uh, you have lived experience. I have to imagine that you're around people who say things that are off, that they just don't know any better, that they don't understand. Like, what are some of the misconceptions in the work that you experience often? Well, one, I think people feel, you know, once you're, I'm using their language, once a felon or once a criminal, always a felon, always a criminal. I think that people, um, though they say, you know, in theory, that the system is supposed to rehabilitate or change one's life. We know that they're punitive, they're racist, um, and it is systemic. Uh, But still, when people come home from prison, they don't say, well, this person has paid their debt. And now that they should have an opportunity to truly transform their life for that, for themselves, their children, and their communities. And so um, it's hard because I am a woman, a Black woman, and a previously incarcerated Black woman. So we are the least thought about when it comes to 
uh, our abilities to build, you know, something massive to really dismantle a system uh, that disproportionately impacts us. And so every day, you know, I have to share my experience in a way where people, you know, for me, I feel like they romanticize about what it's like to be in prison. But then, you know, you do that, you're not compensated the way that you should in order to truly make the changes that we need to make. You were pardoned. That is, I got it right, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> I'm like, whoo, you know, I'm like, did I screw it up? You were pardoned. Can you help people understand what is a pardon? What does it mean that you, because you were already out of incarceration. What does it mean that you were pardoned? So what it says, basically, you're funny. My, my, uh, I guess when I was sent to, oh, when I was charged, it's the United States of America versus Topeka Kimberly Sam. That's how it's listed. And so, you know, they, you have all these barriers. I think it's over 44,000 barriers uh, to people in reentry. Something as simple as if I wanted to, you know, maybe go into cosmetology, there's difficulty getting a license because you have a conviction. Um, If I wanted to practice law, all of these things, you know, new careers I couldn't do. If I wanted to vote in certain states, I could not vote because of this conviction. If I wanted to purchase a firearm, I couldn't do that. Um, and so there, you know, if I wanted to go to a PTA meeting at a school, you know, it, it's certain places where they don't allow you if you have convictions. So it's all these different things. What a pardon does is fully restore your rights. So if I lived in a state where I could not vote, I could vote. Um, if I wanted to purchase a firearm, then I could. If I wanted to now apply for different uh, types of licenses, licensures, I could and would not have to go to the board, you know, explain my situation and all the things. Um, I could go to back to school. You know, many states, they still have the box that people have to check around um, education. And so it's it's many, many things that this allows me to do. Even when I go out of the country, I used to get stopped every single time coming back. And harassed. I one time was asked for me to strip search, and I told them no, I wasn't doing it. You know, um, I had to get a supervisor and go through all this. Since it does not expunge the conviction, uh, the conviction is always there, but it does state that in the country or in the government or per law that I've been fully redeemed, if you will. Topeka, uh, what is what's your work these days? Like, what is your day to day? Like, what do you what what is your work in the world? So, what we do, uh, the Ladies of Hope Ministries, we fight to end poverty and incarceration of women and girls globally, and we do that through two buckets. One is direct service and sustainability, and the other bucket is advocacy and engagement. Uh, we came to that because what we know is we cannot fight for anyone else or ourselves if our basic human rights are not met, which is safe and affordable housing access to healthy food and equitable opportunity and job, career, growth focus, uh, career opportunity and entrepreneurship training and development and access to quality health care. And so our programs, uh, those four are housing. We have Hope House in New York, in the Bronx, in uh, Louisiana, New Orleans. Uh, we're building our first 20 unit affordable housing project in Miami, Florida. And we're also doing our first Hope Hub, which is a shared space to bring community-based organizations corporations um, and other providers into one space. And then another house in Prince George's County, Maryland, and also in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, we just finished our a four apartment um, structure, two bedrooms in each unit to bring women um, out of the prison who have been detained and kept there without being convicted of a crime um, into Hope House Trinidad. And so that's our housing to date. Then we do our food insecurity program, 
We have our Pathways for Equity program, which is a growth focused opportunity partnering, partnering with employer partners to make sure that women have opportunities in corporate America. We have our doula initiative where we provide um, healthcare services and train women on prenatal uh, pregnancy and postpartum uh, doula certification and lactation certification for women who are presently incarcerated and women in community who want alternative birth practices. And then we have our Faces of Women in Prison program, which is a global speakers bureau for women to use their voice to get paid as public speakers. And our Epic Ambassadors work, which trains women on the legislative process how to draft legislation, partner with a local elected official, pass bills, and become lobbyists. So those are all the programs. There is no shortage of work happening over there at the Ladies of Hope Ministry. <laughs> oh, we're actually hiring right now. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, you got to be, because y'all are doing it from the root to the tutor, as, uh, as Grandma would say. <laughs> and back again. And, and, and let them know. Let them know. And back again. Um how do people find how do people find the housing so typically it's through the prisons so what will happen we do in reach we have our epic inside where we in reach and meet with the case managers re-entry coordinators um it's other people it's other people who also have let's say um community-based organizations that know about our work it's word of mouth people who've been through the program who say hey we know a house that you can go to uh, legal defense funds, public defenders, probation officers, so community. And that's how they hear about us. If we have availability, then we will, you know, have them come and stay with us. If not, then we will refer them to another partner uh, who we believe is something or a program that they can really use and benefit from. And, it, it, you know, what was the hard, I'm so interested, what was the hardest to set up? Like what, there's so much work that you do. Was housing hard? Was that the hardest piece? Was it the fellowship prep, the policy piece? You know, and I ask because there's so many, um, there's so many mythologies around reentry work or incarcerated population, formerly incarcerated populations. And I'd love to know, like, I'd love to hear you talk about what it was like to set some of this stuff up. Yeah, housing definitely is, well, we can start from just the organization in and of itself is difficult because you got to raise money to run it, right? It's a nonprofit. So it's that. It's a huge sacrifice it takes. Um, and the the constant trauma that we have to go through to tell these stories, right? To get someone to provide resources in order for us to do a thing that they know needs to be done. So that's in and of itself the most challenging um, and draining experience each and every day. Outside of that, housing, I think, is the number one um, barrier to any person who wants to be able to have somewhere safe to live. But when you are opening a house in a community, a residential community, often where there are homeowners, um, people say, hey, this is great work, but not in our backyard. And when we came into the Bronx at first, it was, oh, we came in, you know, met the landlord, told her we were going to do. She was supportive, of course, gave us the lease you know, got the house together, did an open house. And when the neighbors heard what we were doing, it was like a witch hunt, right? It's like, and it was so fascinating to me because, oh, we're in the Bronx and we live in a community that is predominantly of color. Um, it was like this idea that you shouldn't be here. I mean, one of the neighbors said she had a boyfriend who was in prison 
Another woman, but she didn't want women in prison living in her neighborhood. Another woman said that she didn't want the women to come back to what her husband. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? Like, is this really a fear of yours that nobody wants your husband? <laughs> and if they did, you need to check the husband, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was all of these things, but we had to fight. We had to fight the elected officials. Um, Senator Klein at the time was in there. They did an entire witch hunt, said no hope, a hope house. At the community board meeting, it was no. in, yes, it was insane. Okay, but we fought and we stayed, and you know, eventually they became good neighbors because they realized one that we weren't going anywhere, two that we were not an issue. We wanted to have a beautiful place to live, just like they did, right? And um, they've apologized since, and it's you know, it's been all good. But what I did learn moving forward was when we went to New Orleans, a similar situation happened, but we had a relationship with the mayor and another community-based organization that had their footing there. And so the mayor immediately came on a call with us, uh, with the neighbors, and they simmered down quickly. And what has been, when you look back on setting all of this up, is there a thing that you, I mean, besides just the organization, that you dreamt about and you were like, okay, I'm going to, like, I want us to pull this off. I don't know if we can, but we're going to, like, I want us to nail it. And then you did it. You're like, oh, my God, we did this thing that people said we couldn't do. What's one of those? You know, to be honest, nothing. Everything that I've ever put my mind to, I knew that I could do. And that just goes to, you know, my upbringing, my parents. And what they showed us growing up, you know, they were entrepreneurs. Um, and it was, if you want to do something, you could get it. You know, hard work and determination does that. I also believe that this was my calling and my purpose. And so I knew that God would equip me with what I needed in order to do this work. And so, you know, I knew there would be challenges along the way. And what I did not know is that I would be doing so much so quickly, right? I can say that. Um, every time we, you know, we write, do a program, program launch and it successfully graduates people. It's exciting. You know, every time I meet sisters and they're like, thank you so much for this opportunity. You saved my life or people who are in prison and they call and say, you know what? We saw you on the news or we saw you on TV or congratulations for this. That gives them hope. So I think it's every day connecting with people and knowing the impact that just my existence creates. Uh, will also help to change. Because when we think about these systems of abolition and systems um, of, of decarceration, like for me, I believe providing people with tools in order to use them to change the trajectory of their lives is a form of abolition, right? Like people get involved, unfortunately, because of all of the society and systemic issues, white supremacy and all the things that drive us into incarceration. But I also know that when you are, when you understand that there are other alternatives and you are equipped with those tools and exposed to them, then you don't have to subject yourself to those experiences either. So there's twofold, right? And so um, I choose to work and direct my work on how do I give people resources so they can even do better than I have done. And that's what's most important to me. Boom. Now, uh, are there services for like family members too, or like, how does that work? So like, you know, woman gets out of jail and her kids might need resources or her partner or are there, how does that, do you do anything with that? Or do you connect them to to other partners? Mm-hmm. So we, our, again, our work is focused on all women who are directly affected by the system. So it's whether you've been incarcerated yourself, you have a loved one who's been incarcerated or a friend. So we get women who reach out because their child was incarcerated or their grandchild was incarcerated. 
women who reach out because their boyfriend is incarcerated and they've been advocating for them. Um, and so we help any of them. If we don't have programs that they want or can utilize that, then we will connect them to other community-based organizations that are led by directly affected people to make sure that they also have those resources as well. What's next for you? Like, what's the next bucket of work that you're like, okay, man, I did all these things. I got houses in all these places. What's the, is it more housing? Is it, I don't know, like, is it, what's next? What's your next thing? So there's two next things really that I'm focusing on now. One is uh, uh, affordable housing development. So as we are growing, what I've learned was that we can bring people into the co-living spaces and it's great, right? They get a community of sisters that they can live with somewhere they don't have to pay a lot of rent on. They can really just focus on what they want to do with their life in order to just get on their feet, right? But when people leave, because we're not considered a shelter, the problem is that there are these laws that you have to live in a shelter in order to get access to these voucher programs. Then when you get the voucher, depending on the landlord, the landlord would determine whether or not they want to even rent from you because they ha you have a conviction. And so there are sisters who leave us because they have to get go. So they leave a beautiful space to go back into prison, which is a shelter system. And then they're subjected to all these additional harms. They cannot find an apartment. And then they end up being stuck there. You know, I just want to raise up Miss Jean Custom, who recently passed away. She was the first woman in our house, has been home for 20 years, um, was working successfully for the entire time she had been home at the same job. And because of this, they told her, hey, you come live here, you'll get an apartment quicker. And she did that and they found her dead, right? And so it's the system and how this stuff, um, how the, 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 the country doesn't really understand the needs of people in reentry. And so we do. And so for me, I was like, all right, how do I change this? I could either continue to try to partner with someone to help. I can raise a bunch of money to give to typically a white man to develop something to be a program, or I can do it myself. And so that's where I am. How am I building beautiful, affordable housing for people in our community that needs it? So that's the second step of Suffer Topeka, Sam and TKS Ventures, right? The other thing is building epic financial solutions. So Epic Financial is a fintech platform that provides checking savings accounts access to loans and other financial products for people who are presently incarcerated and previously incarcerated. So it's a community and network of financial tools because the other thing is the disparities and the um, barriers of even getting a checking and savings account, right? A lot of times people can't get them. They walk into the bank and they only have a prison ID and there's a bias of the teller or the person setting up the account and they don't get it. Um, or there are you know, because you have a financial crime, you can't get this type of loan or you're in, you know, automatically have defaults and people don't understand that. So we're building partnerships and collaborations with other fintech companies and other institutions to put under one umbrella, which is Epic Financial um, Solutions, which is a public benefit company. And we are launching checking and savings accounts for those of us who are directly affected uh, before they even get out of prison. And that will be in the next three months. So. Those are the two things that I'm focused on outside of a lot of um, really production around, you know, media and film, telling our own stories uh, because we should be doing that. We can get support by people who are experts in the space, but we need to be executive producing and producing our own stories and sharing that in a way that people really understand what's happened in people's lives, specifically women, in order to change for them. Let them know. Are you... Um... <laughs> I don't, there's nothing to say after that besides drop the mic, but I can't drop this very expensive mic. Um, are you accepting donations? Can people donate to you? How does that work? 
Absolutely. We accepting donations always. Um, What's the website? The website is the T H E L O H M for ladies of hope ministries dot O R G for org. Uh, they can text to donate. They can Ooh. text the number. Oh, fancy. Four- Everybody pay attention. <laughs> Here we go. Yes. You can text the number four, one, four, four, four to the word, the L O H M two zero two two for 2022. So you can do that and you can donate financially. You can also link on the website, obviously. Um, you can donate your time, right? If you have a specific skill set or you want to volunteer and deliver groceries to people or you want to help with resume writing, interviewing, um, all of that. If you have, if you work for a corporation that is looking at fair chance hiring, you want to partner with us to make sure that women have opportunities for growth focused job opportunities where they're actually making decisions in decision making roles. You can help there. You know, there's tons of things that you can help with. Um, creating new opportunities, a platform, so we can actually talk about these issues and you know bring awareness to the issues that are happening. So people can plug in anyway. We can definitely utilize all the support. Um, but in order for us to end poverty and incarceration, it's going to take a lot of money to do so. So text to donate or go on the website, please. Let people know where they can uh, where they can follow you. Yeah, so you can follow me at Topeka K Sam, T-O-P-E-K-A, K for Kimberly, Sam, S is in Sam A-M. And you can follow the organization at the T-H-E-L-O-H-M on all social media platforms. Boom. Everybody, the one, the only Topeka Sam. Before we go, though, I do want to ask you two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what do you say to people who feel like they've done everything and it hasn't changed? They voted, they emailed, they donated, they called, they testified, they protested, and they feel like the system is as bad today as it was yesterday. What do you say to those people? Keep doing it. Keep voting, keep donating, keep keep marching, keep put your fists in the air, go testify call your local elected officials. But also, if you're not seeing that change, be that change. Run for public office. That's the other thing, right? If you are doing all the things that you think to be civically engaged, then maybe you need to be the one to change it yourself. So that's what I would say. Be bold. Be bold. And then let me know when I can volunteer your campaign. And then the uh, last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? (sighs) AP, so many of them. Um, But I would say the The greatest piece was from my dad. It's a scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And that for me has been um, a guide because as long as I'm trusting in God, I believe God abides in me. And if God is omnipotent in all of the things and God lives in me, then I can do anything. And so I trust that. I've learned to trust myself. and that's what drives my, my life, my work, and where I am today. That's advice. Cool. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. I can't wait to be back. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pati the Brewer is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.